0: Please open your Bibles with me to the book of the prophet Micah, and chapter 7 as we conclude this morning our brief study of the book of Micah, six sermons on seven chapters. And we've seen so far in the book of Micah that God, God sent Micah to expose the sins of Israel, their idolatry, their corruption, their... Oppression of one another, their uh, false religion, maybe not in its outward forms, but in their lack of uh, love for God and love for neighbor. We've seen that God has, as a consequence for their sins, declared that the vengeance of the covenant is coming for them, that they're going to be punished, they're going to be displaced from their land, their enemies are going to triumph over them, and they will be sent into exile. Micah has also said that there will be a ruler who's born in Bethlehem, whose goings forth is not only from Bethlehem, but also from days forever. And when this God-man king arrives, he will inaugurate, usher in, a new kingdom of perfection and glory, and the nations will be brought together to join into it with the Jewish people. As we conclude... Micah chapter 7 we're going to see the same themes repeated and summed up in a conclusive manner and the way in which Micah sums this up and concludes in chapter 7 is through a series of four sharp contrasts four sharp contrasts we often know things better by way of contrast i can always hear one of my professors from university uh, who in a he it was in spanish class but he always loved to say this in English, he would always say, as opposed to what? As opposed to what? He wanted us to learn things not only positively, but also by contrast, negatively, because you usually have a better knowledge in that way. Contrast brings dimension and clarity as in a photo. When you increase a contrast slider, it shows things in the foreground more than the background and, and pops them out so you can see them better. Opposition and contrast give greater And Micah uses four contrasts in chapter 7. So what we're going to do is we're going to move through an outline of those four contrasts and read each relevant portion and discuss it as we go. In the previous sermons, we read it through and then we had our outline. We're going to combine those two things now and read through and go through our outline at the same time. So we'll have four points, these four contrasts. And the first of these, number one, is the heartless and the hopeful. The heartless and the hopeful. And we're going to read verses 1 through 7. The heartless and the hopeful. Micah says this, Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchmen, of your punishment, has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend, guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt, the daughter rises up against her mother, The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Contrast. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. As Micah looks out to the people of Israel and Judah, the northern and southern kingdoms, what does he see? He sees a fruitless, heartless, godless people. It's September now, which doesn't mean much for us, unfortunately. But in other parts of the world, uh, what does this mean? It means that the trees will start to change color, and then they will drop their leaves. It's the beginning of the fall or the autumn season. And so this is the the last time... To, to gather in certain things. Uh, my brother who lives in Maine, this is when they go to the apple orchards, and they begin to get fresh-pressed apple cider from the trees, and when I was a kid, we would go on field trips at the beginning of school to apple orchards, and we would gather bags of apples. This is the time to, to gather things, but then what does the end of fall, the end of autumn look like? You see barren trees with no fruit and no leaves, and it's spooky, isn't it? that's when spooky season is if you visit an orchard after its summertime harvest around this time it's it's not in any way a nice place to be when you first go to the orchard you think oh apple cider fresh apples off the tree it's great you go there later and what is it empty barren rotting apples with worms on the floor. It's just, it's disgusting. It's completely different from the beauty of its summertime or end of summertime harvest. Well, Micah uses this kind of metaphor to describe Israel and Judah. He looks at them and they're just barren fruit trees with no fruit on them, no grapes, no figs, nothing luscious and juicy that is so wonderful to to eat. He says, there's nothing good in this people. There's nothing fruitful in them. I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. So it's all gone. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. And then he doesn't speak in metaphor anymore. He uses the reality, the godly has perished from the earth and there's no one upright among mankind. Micah looks at Israel and Judah, at his countrymen and he says, is this what we've become? He says, what are we good at? What are we good at, Israel and Judah? Verse 3, their hands are on what is evil to do it well. You're good at sin. You're good at wickedness. You're good at injustice and oppression. They're not content to simply commit evil. They practice being good at it. And at the end of verse 4, Micah declares the consequence. Because Israel and Judah are fruitless and godless and heartless, they're so saturated with sin, God is going to send them foreign nations to punish them. The day of your watchman, of your punishment, has come. What do do watchmen do? They watch. What are they watching for? Threats, advancing armies. If the day of the watchman has come, it's when he rings the bell and he says, get inside the city, get inside the city. The enemies are here. The enemies are here. And so it says now their confusion is at hand. What happens when you hear that bell? Uh, It's panic. It's terror. When I lived in Wisconsin and you heard a tornado siren It fills you with a sense of, oh, no, oh, no. Uh, We don't have warnings for earthquakes, really. But when the earthquake comes, you sometimes feel, what do we do? What do we do? And we may try to be prepared. But when the time of disaster is upon you, confusion and panic are the result. And this is what God says, the day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Your confusion is at hand. You see the enemy is approaching your city. The watchman cries out, the enemy is upon us. Fly, fly. You fools. And as this panic is happening, as this confusion is, is breaking out, can you rely on other people? Can you trust the people around you? Micah says, no, you can't trust anyone because friend is against friend, family member against family member, countrymen against countrymen. The best of them is like the worst of them, the highest like the lowest, the best of them as a snare and a thorn hedge. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe. You cannot get justice from a judge. You cannot get help and relief from a ruler. Even in families where you might expect the most or or the best treatment and the most compassion and mercy, even families are broken up. Children dishonor parents. Daughters-in-law dishonor their in-laws. Family relationships, marriage relationships, it's all broken. Even the one who lies upon you, it says, is not to be trusted. Even your wife, she will not do what is best for you. She will seek her own good. This is why they're heartless. Doesn't matter if you're my friend. Doesn't matter if you're my family member. Doesn't matter if you're my countryman. I'm doing what's best for me. There's no love of God. There's no love of neighbor. And disaster is coming upon the heartless. So, what's the contrast? It's in verse 7 where Micah shows hope. He says, But as for me, already you have words of contrast. But as for me, in contrast to the heartless nation in which I dwell, I will look to the Lord. I will wait. That's the language of hoping. I will hope for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. While disaster looms, Micah trusts in the Lord. Why? Because he knows that though the people may be unjust, God is just. And the discipline that God is sending is justly sent. You see, verse seven, chapter 7, verse 7, reads to me much like the end of Habakkuk where Habakkuk first wrestles with the idea of foreign nations being sent to judge Judah, but then he accepts it. And he says, even if there's no harvest, even if there's no livestock, even if we have nothing, yet the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. Habakkuk submitted to the exile and discipline of God because he trusted in God and he hoped in God. And so also here, Micah 2 is submissive and hopeful. He hopes that God has greater purposes beyond this punishment. The day of confusion may be at hand, but he will wait for the God of my salvation. There is something beyond this discipline, and I will hope for it. The heartless people will be judged, but I will hope for something more beyond it. What can we learn from this, brothers and sisters, today in 2023 in Southern California? Here is a lesson for us. God sees the godless, so be at peace. God sees the godless, so be at peace. When I read Micah 7, 1-6, through 6, I sound like, oh, this is America. <laughs> Cutthroat competition. everyone seeking their best in the name of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which is used as a facade for hyper-selfishness, cutthroat competition, a lack of honor and respect at all levels of society, no one trusts their neighbors. Do you even know your neighbors' names? If you don't, I don't blame you. And a seeming swelling sea of sin. When we see this, what are we prone to do? We're prone to be tossed by the waves of the sea of sin in which our boat is sailing. Oh, it's too much, it's too much. The disrespect, the dishonor, the distrust, the corruption, the greed, the selfishness. But Micah says, but as for me, I will look to the Lord. Why? We need to remember the Lord sees all this sin. He sees the godless. God sees the godless. He knows. And he punishes and will punish The wicked, in a heartless world, therefore, we ought to be hopeful that though there is great injustice here, though we may seek justice from rulers and judges and not receive it, yet God, the just judge, sees everything. God sees the godless and all of this wickedness that provokes our hearts and makes us feel unsettled. We ought to be hopeful and trust in the Lord and be at peace because God sees The godless. Proverbs chapter 24, verse 19 says, fret not yourself because of evildoers. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. And it goes on to say, for the evil man has no future. Remember that God will bring into judgment all the deeds of men. And so though we see much sin now, and though we do not see sin punished necessarily in this life, nevertheless, it most certainly will be. And that gives us peace Justice will be served. So turn off the news outlets or the social media outlets that are going to beam a sea of sin into your brain. Be diligent in your work and love your neighbor. And in all this, be at peace. Wait for the God of your salvation who hears you. And in a heartless world, be hopeful because God sees the godless. So be at peace. Let's move on to the second contrast, which is in verses 8 through 10, and the title here is The Maidservant and the Mistress. The Maidservant and the Mistress. Now, to understand verses 8 through 10, you need to understand that when we read the word enemy in just a moment, it's in the feminine form. Verses 8 through 10 is a contrast between two women— And the enemy that's spoken of is a woman. It it was much easier in the Spanish ministry this morning because it just says la enemiga. So you know it's feminine. But in English, the Hebrew feminine word is obscured by our relatively genderless language. And you need to know that this is a woman enemy in verses 8 through 10. That's important for how it's presented to us. Verses 8 through 10. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. That's the feminine enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon his vindication. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. Pride and vanity affect all persons, men and women. But they manifest themselves, they show up in different ways in men and women. And so we're going to speak in some generalities that you have to accept as true, but are not universally true. Among women, it's an age-old truth that girls take delight in hurting other girls by being better than them. Girls love to be superior to other girls and can be extremely competitive, even brutally so, with one another. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, you've never had a sister, I guess, or girlfriends. Now, all joking aside, nearly every movie or show with teenage girls in it will portray some form of female cruelty. And why do they do that? Because it connects to reality. They may play it up, they may overdo it, but it connects to reality. There is a particular form of female cruelty that comes from vanity and pride. And this is not to say men do not have the same thing, they do, it just looks different. Men punch each other in the face. But girls tear each other to shreds with words and looks and all kinds of things. pressures more social forms of cruelty. Beyond the make-believe world of Hollywood, you don't have to look very far or live very long to see this. To see girls being mercilessly cruel to one another and seeming to delight in making the other feel bad because their joy is in the other's suffering. It's not enough that one girl should succeed, the others must fail. Well, this kind of proud and vain mindset, God deliver us from it, but this kind of proud and vain mindset is what Micah uses to describe the nations in the, in the form of a woman against Israel in the form of a woman, where the foreign nation taunts and provokes and shames Israel now that Israel is the one being defeated. Israel's cities are being torn down. They are losing the battles. They are being overcome. And the foreign nation is a taunting, provoking, bitter enemy of a woman who is delighting in Israel's suffering and misery as she taunts her woman to woman. In verse 8, we see the female enemy rejoicing over Israel's fall, and we see in verse 10 the taunt. Where's Jehovah, your God? You say Yahweh is your great God. Where is he now? So how does Israel respond? Israel responds by saying, I have to suffer this indignation and this shame for now, but there will come a time when the roles are reversed. There will be a time when you will be ashamed, when you will be trampled like the mud in the streets, when you will be destroyed and and I will see it says Israel, I will see your downfall, I will see your destruction, shame will cover you who boasted and taunted you, who puffed yourself up in pride, all that pride and vanity will suddenly come to a fall, and you will be the one who is ashamed. Now, why did I give this point, this contrast, the title of mistress and maidservant, or maidservant and mistress? Well, it's because of a portion in the Proverbs that I'd like you to turn to with me. Please look at Proverbs chapter thirty, verses twenty one to twenty three. Says this, under three things the earth trembles, under four it cannot bear up a slave when he becomes king, and a fool when he is filled with food, an unloved woman or an angry woman when she gets a husband, and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. See, the maidservant and the mistress, we use titles Mr. And, Mrs., Mr and Mrs. That's for master and mistress. Mistress is just the feminine form of master. Master Renahan, Mistress Renahan, it's Mr. and Mrs. So the mistress is the woman of the house, la señora, the woman of the house. And when she is displaced by her maidservant, you have an inferior in place, the maidservant, who suddenly becomes the superior in place over the, the, uh, the mistress And it's saying that the earth cannot even bear when this happens. Why? Because the maidservant will now take advantage of this inverted superiority and inferiority and use it to her advantage to be cruel and merciless to her former mistress. When the maidservant ascends and becomes ascendant, then she will do everything in her power to vent herself upon the one who was previously superior to her. And this is what we see happening in Micah 7, 8 through 10. The nations around look at Israel and they can't destroy it. They can't defeat it. And Israel seems like the superior to them. But now that they are gaining victory over Israel, the maidservant has become the mistress, has displaced the mistress, and is delighting in oppressing and taunting and provoking her. This is the kind of metaphor that Micah has chosen to use to describe Israel and Assyria, or Israel and the foreign nations. It's the the pride of a woman who has suddenly ascended over other women can often be insufferable. Uh, It's okay to show a show of hands. How many of you are familiar with either the books or the movies Pride and Prejudice? A good number. Remember when Lydia gets married, and then she gets to walk first into the house in front of her sister Lizzie? No, Lizzie, I go ahead of you because I'm married now. She should have been ashamed of her marriage, right? But Lydia was all puffed up because she was the married woman now and had a higher social status than her older sister. That's the, this is what Proverbs is talking about, how insufferable that kind of vanity is, and that's the kind of cruelty and taunting that the foreign nations are giving to Israel. Proud and haughty, insufferable vanity Well, Israel says, I have to endure this for now because the Lord has sent this discipline. Verse 9, I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. God will use the nations to punish Israel, but he will punish the nations that punish Israel. So Israel knows this will be uh, inverted or changed, flipped in the future. So what can we learn here? Here's the lesson Your discipline will not last, so be at peace. Your discipline will not last, so be at peace. In a previous sermon, we used the point, first Babylon, then bliss. For now, we have to live in exile among the nations. But there will come a time when God brings us into blessedness. Well, it's the same point given here again. We must suffer the, the indignity of being persecuted and shamed by those around us, and we may not suffer as much as other people do in other parts of the world or at other times in history, but it still nevertheless happens to us that because we, are, because we belong to Christ, because we worship him and honor him, it brings upon us The the pride and the vanity of others who hate Christ and therefore hate us and want to see us suffer and be brought low. But we need to know, in order to endure this, it won't last. It won't last. The pride of the unbelieving around us who want to stomp on us, perhaps, it will not last, and there will be a reversion or an inversion. We ought, therefore, to be at peace. If God gives our enemies triumph over us for a time, it's only for a time. Until he pleads my cause and executes vengeance for me, says Micah. There is a greater justice coming, which we, is what we saw in the previous point. There is a final judgment, a final bringing of all things into account, and I trust in that. Therefore, I know my punishment is, is temporary, my suffering, my discipline is only for a time, and I will be vindicated consider Jesus, who endured the worst mocking possible. Why did Jesus endure the worst mocking possible? Because he's the most worthy of honor. He's the most dignified to be worthy of honor, the most worthy of worship and obedience and faith. He's God in the flesh. No one was Better, as in more good or true or just or perfect or holy than him. No one was more worthy of honor and respect and love and obedience and worship. And therefore, all of the ridicule and the mocking and the scorn and the contempt, all of it is infinitely unjustifiable and wicked. But he endured it. He endured it to give his life for us. And we can follow his example And not only that, but he has also pronounced a blessing on all those who suffer the same fate. Blessed are you when they revile you. Blessed are you when they speak ill of you. Blessed are you when they persecute you as they persecuted me before you. Blessed are you when you suffer for my name's sake, Jesus says. Your discipline will not last, so be at peace. Number three, the third contrast. The triumphant and the trembling. And here we're looking at verses 11 through 17. The triumphant and the trembling, this is very similar to the previous contrast. However, it has more of a focus on what's coming after as opposed to the shortness and brevity of the time of what you're enduring now. Micah focuses on the glory that awaits them after their suffering. Beginning in verse 11. A day for the building of your walls. In that day, the boundary shall be far extended. In that day, they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt, and from Egypt to the river, from sea to sea, and from mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants, for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God. And they shall be in fear of you. Here's another strong contrast, a time of rebuilding and blessedness when God's the fortunes of God's people are, are restored so that their boundaries are extended. Why do you add on to a city because there's more people. Why do you expand your tent because you have more children? The the expansion of the borders of Israel or their cities is because more and more people are filling them. The land that was desolate because of exile is filled and filled and filled as their cities grow and their lands grow from uh, as far as they can perceive, from Egypt to the river, that's from Egypt to the Euphrates, and from north to south, mountain to mountain. The whole world as they know it, people will come from these areas and join them and swell the population of the land of Israel. These are the triumphant. Exile is over. We're returning. We're rebuilding. And then we see the trembling that these people that oppressed Israel and hated the people of God, they will be cursed. The language of the curse upon Satan in the Garden of Eden is used to describe these people. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. No one will be lower than them. Like the crawling things of the earth. That's the curse on Satan. You who sought to be ascendant and exalted above all things. You, you, you perfect and you holy angel sought to be greater than all things. Therefore, you shall be lower than the lowest of all things, Satan, you serpent. And so also these people who defy God's people are given the same fate. You who exalted yourselves over my people, You will be brought under them. You will be trampled and you shall tremble. What's going to happen to us? We are the enemies of God. What will he do to us as they turn in dread to the Lord? What can we learn from this? Here's the lesson. You will be brought home. So be at peace. You will be brought home. So be at peace. Peace. Micah foresees a restoration, and we know God brought his people back from exile. But Micah sees a very glorious restoration, doesn't he? Far beyond what happened in the restoration and the rebuilding that took place after the return from exile. We've mentioned it several times because it's important that when the temple was reconstructed and reconsecrated, the older people wept because the new temple was inferior in glory to the to the previous temple. Things were not better. They were, in a sense, worse. A temple was better than no temple, but this temple was worse than that temple. And they wept. And they said in Nehemiah, Nehemiah after the restoration, we are slaves in our own land. They were just a few, living in a few houses in Jerusalem. So what Micah foresees is indeed the return from exile, but he's seeing something far more wondrous and glorious. He's seeing the building of Jesus Christ's church. He's seeing the temple of God, which is the church of Jesus Christ, constructed and filled with people from all the corners of the earth who swell it and cause it to grow and to grow so that it expands and it expands and it expands, which we've already seen in Micah when it talks about the the, the hill of the mount of the Lord being growing and ascending greater than all other places and the nations, uh, going up it, ascending it to fill the temple of God. This is the same prophecy in similar terms. And as the people of God triumph and enter into his temple, the enemies of God's people tremble because they know that when all things are brought to their completion, it means judgment and destruction for them as Jesus acts in a glorious manner to bring his people home into their new creation inheritance and to suddenly bring judgment upon his enemies. When we see this, we need to learn that lesson, I will be brought home. I will be brought home. The temple has been rebuilt. The kingdom has been established. And I'm in it, in the church, but we're still a, pil- a pilgriming people. We're still a, a peregrine people. We're still on the way. We're still in the for now time. And God will bring me home so I can be at peace. It's one thing to say my discipline will not last. That was the previous point. It's another thing to say that there is a far more powerful glory that is yet to come. And I will most certainly be brought there. And as Peter said in 1 Peter, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the Revelation of jesus christ and we see in verse 14 this imagery of god shepherding his people in a way that they are unafraid and blessed verse 14 shepherd your people who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land they have no enemies let them graze in bashan and gilead as in the days of old and in good pasture land with no fear of anyone as their god himself shepherds them this is the inheritance to which we will be brought this is the home to which he will bring us this is the blessed hope for all Christians. And it, it ought to be more easily tasted by some of our members. Why? What have we been seeing recently as a church? We've been hearing so-and-so is having this health challenge and so-and-so this health challenge. And this has been hard for me as a pastor, difficult. It's as we, we bear the, the weight of, of sympathy Gladly, but it's difficult to bear as you you feel the pain and the experience of other brothers and sisters around you and their family members. And it shouldn't surprise us that these things are being experienced. Why? Because a, a segment of our congregation is reaching an age where that's the normal kinds of events that will happen to them and to all of us if the Lord gives us life that long. And so those saints who have reached this chapter, this age and period of their lives, they should be able to taste more clearly, if if that language even makes sense, they ought to be to taste more clearly that home to which they're being brought. They, They can already smell the cooking, the home cooking that's ahead of them because they're further on the road, they're closer to home. And they need to be reminded, I want to remind you to the saints who are who are older than than some of us. Whether you classify yourself as older, I'll leave to you. But I want to tell you, you will be brought home. So be at peace. You will be brought home. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our sister Consuelo, before her surgery, she said to me, if the Lord takes me, I'm, I'm, I'm happy for that. I submit to that. I will be with Christ. She knew I will be brought home and her heart had peace. The Lord has given her more days with us and we bless his name for that. But she, she was more prepared, I believe, for that because she saw her life might end in a few days. Brothers and sisters, wherever our lives end, the same perfect guaranteed hope is there for all of us. These things do grieve us. But they can't defeat us. Because when our discipline ends, we go home. We are at peace then. We will be at peace then, so we ought to be at peace now. Fourthly and lastly, the fourth and final contrast is God and the guilty, verses 18 to 20. God and the guilty the greatest contrast that there can be, that might be an overstatement, but the greatest contrast that there can be is to consider on the one hand the greatness, the majesty, the power, the holiness, the perfection of the one true and living God. His perfect purity, his glory and holiness. And then to compare and contrast that with the weakness and the sin and the inconstancy, and the lies, and the deceit, and the fickleness, and the unfaithfulness of God's creatures, us. When we make this great contrast and comparison between God and the guilty, we would ask the question, how could God ever forgive, or show mercy to one so beneath and below, indifferent and other and wicked, and unholy, and unrighteous, and unjust. We could add on lots of words, which would not be an exaggeration. When, when you're writing, they want you to be succinct. Just choose one good word instead of a bunch of adjectives. But in this case, we would need to use all the adjectives we could just to properly express just how wicked and sinful and infinitely distant from God we are because of our sin. And how could God, in such a great contrast to the guilty, pardon and have mercy and compassion on the wicked? Well, this is Micah's concluding question in contrast. Verse 18 and following. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will Tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. The climactic question of the book of Micah is who is a God like you? And you may already know this, but that's Micah's name. That's Micah's name, Micah. Let's do a little bit of, of Hebrew. Micah, M-I. That's the first word. Me. Me means who. It's an easy Hebrew word to remember. Me, who, who, me? Me. So Micah, me, who. And then the C, K, means like. Meek. Meek. Yah, Jehovah. Who is like Jehovah? Is the name of the prophet Micah. Who is like Jehovah? And Micah uses a slightly larger form of that question here to say, who is a God like you? Who is a God like you is the climactic question of Micah's book. And what prompts this question is that God does forgive, and God does have compassion, and God does pardon iniquity. We've seen throughout the book of Micah the wickedness of God's people, Israel and Judah, From every level of society or every position and station, every kind of person, men and women, old and young, rich and poor, strong and weak, everything, sin corrupts them all. And Micah has said in this chapter, the godly has perished from the earth. It's a barren, fruitless orchard that's good for nothing but to be cut down and burned. And yet, God will have mercy and yet God will pardon. And yet God will pass over transgressions. Who is a God like you? Who is like Jehovah? Micah? Micah? What, what makes Micah marvel is this contrast between God and the guilty. Think about this. God made a covenant with Abraham to multiply the nation of Israel to give the descendants the land of Canaan. And he made a covenant through Moses to say, if you're going to live in this holy land, you must be a holy people. And if you won't, I will punish you and, and expel you, exile you. And Israel has been unfaithful, and God is punishing them and exiling them. And yet he will restore them. He will bring them home. Why would he do this? Who is like the Lord? Well, what's the lesson we can learn here? The lesson is this. God will keep his covenant, so be at peace. God will keep his covenant, so be at peace. I want to contrast in, within this heading the old covenant and the new. Micah speaks here of God granting a perfect And lasting and enduring forgiveness he says you will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea once they're down there they're not coming back (laughs) if you cast the sin of someone into the depths of the sea it's not coming back it's gone that the forgiveness that Micah describes is a forgiveness that's everlasting And that's a contrast with the Old Covenant. Why? Because the writer to the Hebrews tells us that if you use animal blood and animal's flesh and Levitical priests, mortal priests, to offer up a sacrifice to restore your ceremonial purity to live in Canaan, it says in Hebrews that there's actually a reminder of sin that's still encoded and embedded in those sacrifices to say, you need more. You need something greater. You need something other. And Micah is speaking of something greater and something other, something that gives a perfect and perpetual forgiveness. There must be a perfect sacrifice. And we know that God provided it for Israel and for all men through Jesus Christ. In fact, we talked about it just last week. Uh, We were reading Micah 6 and 7 and separated by a week. You could just read Micah 6 and 7 back to back where you would see in Micah 6 the question of what can I offer for the sin of my soul? And we said last week that the innocence and the obedience of Jesus make his sacrifice infinitely powerful to bring about a perfect forgiveness. And this is a description of the forgiveness that comes from Jesus' sacrifice on the cross pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression, delighting in steadfast love, treading our iniquities underfoot, casting all our sins into the depths of the sea. How can this be? Not through animals, not through the old covenant, not through the the Levitical priests, but through a new covenant and a new sacrifice and a new and perfect priest who is Jesus Christ. And what is the promise of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31? I will be merciful to their iniquities and their sins I will remember no more. It's the same promise we see at the conclusion of Micah chapter 7. God's promise in the new covenant is to give this perfect forgiveness and he has made it possible. It has been procured for us in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who gave his body and shed his blood for us. And does the death of Jesus forgive us all our sins? Praise God, it does. Does the death of Jesus forgive all our sins for all time? Praise God that it does. Brothers and sisters, see this wonderful, it's not a glimpse, it's a, it's a glare of the gospel in Micah chapter 7. As Micah sees a time when God will provide for them a perfect forgiveness, a perfect pardon. And this came to them in Jesus Christ for Israel and Israel first for Israel and Judah, first to the Jew, then to the Greek, first to Jerusalem, then to Samaria, then to the corners of the world, and it's reached us here. It's reached the countries where you are born in, and now here we are, the new covenant has reached us. There's no greater contrast than between God and the guilty, but so great a contrast only serves to make God's mercy and his love and his faithfulness all the more clear and magnificent. Because Micah concludes by trusting in God's covenant promises, he's remembering that God had sworn to Abraham not only to give the land and multiply the people, but also to provide a descendant who would bless the nations. Micah knows God's not done. He has not yet fulfilled all his promises, which he will fulfill in his covenant made with Abraham. And so we too need to remember that God has sworn to us, he has covenanted to us in the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins, and God keeps his covenant. He keeps his word. He cannot fail. He swears by himself because there is none greater. Who is a God like you? He is the God like which there is no other, to whom there is no comparison. He pardons iniquity. He passes over transgression. He delights in steadfast love. He again has compassion. And you know what Israel becomes, therefore? It becomes a a microcosm, a, a little mini world that represents the larger world. God gave to Adam a beautiful inheritance, a beautiful creation. And what did Adam do? He became a fruitless, barren orchard as he did not produce fruits of righteousness, but rather sinned against God. And yet God was merciful to provide a remedy, to provide forgiveness, a way to restore Adam and to give him an even more glorious inheritance. And so what we see in Israel is what has happened on a larger scale to mankind through the one that Israel provided, Jesus Christ. And though God's people, all mankind, have rejected him, yet he will have mercy on all who call upon the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and will forgive all their sins. The new covenant is not just for the Jew, as we said, it's for all men. And so therefore, Adam's treachery and Adam's betrayal is undone and reversed through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Brothers and sisters, we ought to ask this question and marvel at it and delight in it. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance That's the elect. It's not just restoring the remnant to the land of Canaan. It's an elect remnant of mankind that he brings into the the new creation in whom in Adam we were faithless, but in Christ we are faithful. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. What a wonderful crescendo and climax to the book of Micah. As we've seen throughout it, the sin and wickedness of mankind and the sin and wickedness of Israel, and it all comes to a wonderful conclusion of God's greatness and God's grace in the blood of Jesus Christ given to us in the new covenant. Let us meditate on that greatness and love and mercy. Let us meditate on those promises. Let us meditate on that covenant which God will most certainly fulfill. And let us be at peace. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, how we thank you that you see the wicked, you see the ungodly, you see the unjust how we thank you that the discipline that you permit in our lives will not last how we thank you that you will bring us home how we thank you that you keep your covenant and therefore we have peace we have peace among the injustice of this world we have peace under the afflictions of this life We have peace looking toward heaven. We have peace knowing that our sins are forgiven in the blood of Jesus Christ. You have blessed us so abundantly and richly. And our response is words of thanksgiving and deeds of thanksgiving. So help us to love you more and to serve you better in gratitude for all that you have done for us. We praise you and we thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the name of Jesus Christ, our God incarnate.